second case is United States, it's 22-4738, United States v. Haynes. Mr. Groney? Sir, whenever you're ready, take your time. Thank you, Judge. Your Honors, my name is Fernando Groney. May it please the Court, I try this case on behalf of Mr. Asmat Haynes, and my opposing counsel, Mr. Coleman and Mr. Hurt, tried it representing the United States. Mr. Haynes had actually raised five issues. Some of them have, quite frankly, more merit than others. One of them is the jury selection. I understand that there is no specific law in this circuit. The government correctly, and we recognize that in our reply brief, points out the case of Senges from the 11th Circuit. I would briefly indicate that that case is still good law, not a precedential, but a persuasive value in this circuit. Nonetheless, the facts in the Haynes case are different. This was just not a regular conspiracy to possess with intent to distribute and distribute drugs and to have guns. This is actually a case where, as part of that conspiracy, there was actually a distribution, one particular discrete distribution in 2017, where two individuals purchased drugs from Mr. Haynes, according to the evidence. One of them, they actually injected the heroin. One of them died, and the other one was injured. That makes the connection between the arguments or the reservations expressed by the jurors, the venire, the potential jurors, much more significant and more likely to raise prejudice as to the composition of that jury. What should have been done in this case, and I did not, quite frankly, ask for it, was what generally is done in either death cases or actually death penalty cases, where an individualized voir dire is conducted or a jury questionnaire is submitted. I submit to the court that none of the jurors who indicated that they had past experiences with overdose death in their families or close friends, or none of the jurors who indicated that they had a problem or that they thought they had a problem being fair and impartial as to my client during the trial, were actually in panel. Nonetheless, it's hard to get the genie back into the bottle or the toothpaste back into the tube once that has been opened. So that is the first issue. Mr. Haynes requested prior to the selection of the jury. You objected after the fact, didn't you? No, sir. I objected prior to the impanelment of the jury. You objected prior to the impanelment, but you objected after the events that you're complaining of, that the comments that were made during the course of the general voir dire. That's what you're complaining of. People answering questions truthfully, asked by Judge Jackson. Correct. About their own experiences. That's correct. And you're saying that tainted things, but you didn't lay the groundwork beforehand. Well, I did not object as the taint was being 
In my, in my view, performed. Yes, sir, that is correct. I, however, I objected prior to the... You objected before the paneling. You said that, that this went too far or I, I, something like that. I, I believe, Your Honor, quite frankly, that whether this court is willing to extend Senget or to, to, to differentiate the 11th Circuit case, and there are some other cases from this circuit, Hines as well, into this specific situation or not, that's where that issue. But the handling of ordeer is is a discretionary thing. Extremely it's, it's a general proposition that is a strong general proposition handled by the trial judge. Correct, and it's there's also a strong proposition that jurors or prospective jurors will follow the instructions of the court. So that that I will let that. And if, and if a juror said, "I can be impartial, I can try the case on the basis of the law and the evidence." They weren't disqualified. That is correct. And they weren't subject to challenge for cause. That is correct. And, and all the other ones that were actually spoke up, and my argument is perhaps tainted the, the, the entire panel, none of those got on the jury. They're going, they were challenged for cause. That is correct. That is correct. You know, you, it, it's not an unreasonable argument. You make a good point, uh, counsel. I, I guess the problem is that if... District courts were required to conduct individualized voir dire in each and every case where there's some possibility, as you pointed out, of the genie getting out of the bottle. I mean, that we'd be in court forever. I mean, it's and the reality is that most jurors, I would think, would have some experience with someone, either in their family, a friend, someone given the pervasive nature of drugs in our society today that had would have some experience. It, it'd be hard to, I think, to differentiate among a Jury veneer. Your Honor, you, you're absolutely correct. Mr. Hurt, on the other side, and I, I, I used to be a prosecutor and, you know, handled numerous cases from the other side. And on this side, on drugs, the issue with fentanyl becomes different because the epidemic of fentanyl is so bad that it's the equivalent of one airline full of passengers crashing and everybody dying every day. So... Where before there was, when this Senges case, for instance, in the 80s, uh, in Florida, which was by that time, you know, cowboy city, cocaine cowboy city. The experience that jurors have with drugs is different than the current experience created by the epidemic of opioids and fentanyl, which makes more likely than not that anybody who's using any drug will have a speck of fentanyl and they might overdose. Sometimes with fatal consequences like in this case, sometimes luckily with not. But but that but that you're absolutely correct. That is the issue on that on that matter. Well and we've you know, I think you alluded to Heinz where we've acknowledged that jurors can be biased against crime, right? And they can have they can know about the adverse consequences of crime, but the question is whether they can still be fair to both sides. And when you, we've said when you have jurors say they can be fair to both sides, the fact that they're aware of the adverse consequences even of drug crimes is, is not enough reason to keep them off or to suggest that everyone on the jury is tainted, right? Kind of no matter what the crime is. That is correct, Judge. The, the other issues that have been raised is actually one is of the sufficiency of the evidence as to the counts two and three, which are actually 
Counts two is the overdose death of the individual who died, or an overdose death of an individual, and the other one, count three, is an overdose of a separate individual. One of them died, one of them testified. I submit to the court that there was insufficient evidence to convict in those counts. The government's names protected or something during the course of the trial? They were not, Judge. Well, I know, but some of the briefs use initials, some don't. Judge Jackson's opinion puts their names in there. And the government uses initials, I did not. Indictment gave the names, right? That is correct. One of them is a fellow named Evans, he testified. It's all a public record. I submit respectfully that Mr. Evans did testify. Mr. Evans' recollection, of course, the jury believed part of it. It's hard to differentiate or distinguish what did they believe about him, what stuck with the jurors, and what was actually supported and buttressed and impermissibly, I argue in my next point, by the testimony that the government included. He testified sketchily. He said my client was actually the one who supplied the heroin to him on July the 15th of 2017. The bulk of the evidence in that case, as to those counts, was actually my next argument. The government presented a fellow named Paul Swartz, who is widely regarded as the foremost expert on telephone analysis down in our neck of the woods and the peninsula area of Virginia and the Tidewater area. We all worked together. I had tried numerous cases of all kinds of crime where the government brings in an expert to do cell analysis, distill raw data, put a particular defendant of a robbery outside of the location or within a certain number of miles from the location. But he didn't do any of that here, right? He took cell phone records that showed X called Y or Y texted X. Correct. He took cell phone records from my client and the other two individuals, Mr. Evans and Mr. Schroeder, and did exactly that. My argument is that the only reason, the only way that he could have done that, which actually took him about 40 hours to do, the only way that he could have done that is because he is an expert, because he has specific skill, knowledge, experience in technological matters, which as a result of him being an expert and undesignated in this case. He said anybody could do this. It would just take them longer, but he's familiar with the program where you put the data in. Well, there was another witness who testified before him as to something else, which really didn't require that much expertise, who said, I'm not an expert. I can't do it. He said that, but he said that it took him a long time to do. So without him, he should have been designated as an expert. So what difference would it make if he's an expert or a lay witness? His evidence came in. Well, that changed your closing argument, maybe. Well, I think it violates Rule 701, Federal Rule of Evidence 701 and 702, Your Honor, and then Judge Jackson would have been, you know, you have to make a ruling. There's a lot of spillover between lay testimony and expert testimony. Judge Jackson, he'd been around a long time. He has. A lot of cases, a lot of experts, a lot of lay witnesses. But I do not dispute that the government could have, and quite frankly, I was 
surprised that he wasn't designated as an expert. So then what difference does it make? You're saying he testified as a lay witness, but he totally could have testified as an expert, absolutely qualified to do that. So as Judge King is pointing out, then why does it matter? His testimony and this chart that he put together would have come in either way. In one way, as an expert, the jury might be inclined to believe him even more, right, to credit his testimony even more because he's an expert. But the government didn't get that. They just got a lay witness. That's true. We can't speculate to that, but things should, you know, the rule is there for a reason. I thought that would help you, that you could argue he's not going to have more qualifications than anybody else in the courtroom. I mean, an expert supposedly does. That's the reason they call him an expert. I would think calling him a lay witness would be helpful to the defendant. Sometimes, and leans toward the defendant anyway. On this side of the table, we've got an expert, a guy with a three-piece suit that comes from 100 miles away. You were in charge of a lot, but you're correct. He could have, he would have been able to testify that as an expert, but he wasn't. So maybe you're just quibbling then. The last two arguments, Your Honor. I don't blame you. I mean, I appreciate your work. I am quibbling. I think that I was surprised. Everybody should be surprised. And I think that, you know, the weight in the, what he did is he got that raw data that nobody else could have, it was introduced. We admitted to the raw data because without the analysis, that's what it is. Just numbers that nobody can understand. And that's the reason why he should have been qualified as an expert. He's like a summary witness. He was a summary witness for something that was not testified to, were documents that were actually analyzed. Well, Judge Jackson said he's just talking about the facts that are already there. Well. He just, I don't make it understandable. Judge, I understand. He had something, there was some phrase he used. I forget what that was. He also said that any. Digestible. Digestible. It was more digestible. It was. He barely made it more digestible. But without his expertise, nobody could have, he is the only one who could have digested and presented it. Without that, it was just raw data. The last argument that I have is actually two issues that I raised in sentencing. I actually, actually, I think they're quite interesting issues. One of them is the notion that because a death resulted, the guidelines, there is a dichotomy. I guess I'm going to have to bring it up in my rebuttal. But there is, there seems to be two definitions of what qualifies an individual who's been convicted of selling a drug that results in an overdose, whether the person dies or gets injured, to a higher level, sentencing guideline level, 43. The guidelines say that is a similar offense. The statute says a prior felony conviction, a prior felony drug conviction. And that is the distinction that my colleagues on the other side of the government are making. Because a prior felony drug conviction under the sentence, the 21 U.S.C. 841 A1B deals with, it's a felony drug offense. That elevates the sentencing guideline to a level 43. The sentencing guidelines itself says the individual has to have sold a drug which resulted in death or serious bodily injury and has been convicted of a previous similar offense. A previous similar offense is actually a similar offense. And if your honors go to the sentencing guidelines, this section, 
The sentencing guidelines section itself talks about offensive dealing with manufacture, distribution, or possession with intent, which my client had been convicted of a previous drug offense for possession, which wouldn't qualify either A, under the statute, or B, under the sentencing guidelines. Well, we had um, cases that they may all be unpublished, I don't know, where we said a similar offense is a felony drug offense. And this year, the Sentencing Commission agreed with us and changed the guidelines to clarify that. And now the guidelines say that serious or what, a, what is it, similar offense means felony drug offense as defined in uh, 21 U.S.C. 802. Your Honor, in closing, for now I will say that the, the government, and I think this court previously, and the government both relied on the Johnson case from the uh, Sixth Circuit and on the uh, Davis case from the Sixth Circuit as well. In in the Davis case, the statute, the the higher sentence was actually imposed using the statute, which again broadly says previous drug offense. Uh, The Johnson case... The higher sentence was imposed using uh, a combination of the statute and the sentencing guidelines. And in that case, Mr. Johnson's previous conviction was, Mr. Johnson's current conviction for which he was being sentenced was for distribution, which resulted in death. And his previous conviction was for distribution itself. My client's previous conviction was just for possession. So my time has... It was a felony, Virginia felony... Possession. Virginia felony possession, correct. And the difference between the 43 you didn't want and you were arguing for a 38, is that what it was? That is correct. Okay. And I know, and if I can just answer your question, the government is going to say, Mr. Grannis or Mr. Haynes, my client's argument on the, uh, on the correct calculation of that initial guideline. And his other argument on the Judge Jackson's failure to strike down an extra four levels for Mr. Haynes representing, misrepresenting that he was selling fentanyl when in fact he was selling something else, uh, should, uh, doesn't matter because Judge Jackson departed and gave Mr. Haynes a lower sentence anyhow. Yeah, the guidelines gave him a life plus 60 months. That's correct. And you asked for 420 months. 360 plus 60 months, and that's what he... And the judge gave him 420 months. He gave him... The judge gave him exactly what you asked for. That is correct. Yes, right. thank, thank you so much. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Coleman. Yes, Your Honor. Are you related to Ms. Coleman back there? Not that I know of. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was... Wondering why she was sitting there cheering you on or something. <laughs> I don't know, Your Honor. <laughs> Go ahead. May it please the court, Your Honor. We asked the court to affirm the, the district court here. Uh, the veneer was not tainted. The evidence of this defendant's conviction was was more than sufficient. The lay witness who testified as a summary witness here did so properly, and the sentence here imposed was correct as. Uh, opposing counsel just noted, I think on this sentencing issue in particular, the sentence imposed here was the very sentence that 
the defendant requested at sentencing. Um, so these issues that, you know, about what a similar offense is or whether the fentanyl was misrepresented as, um, as another drug, those, those didn't make any difference in the sentence imposed in the district court. The district court even said at sentencing that described some of these issues as academic when he was announcing the sentence. Uh, well, I think he may have described the second enhancement issue as academic, but didn't the first one matter or did neither one of them matter in terms of whether or not this defendant fell inside or outside of the guidelines? Uh, Your Honor, the, if, 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 if the defendant was enhanced for misrepresenting fentanyl, then his guideline range would have been life plus 60, um, and so it would have made no difference. Um, if, even if, for instance, if the base offense level was 38 because of this issue about whether there was a similar offense, if you had taken the other enhancements in play and then you add the four, four levels for the misrepresenting fentanyl, you would still be over and it would be life plus 60. So I, I don't think it impacted in any meaningful way the sentence imposed by the district court. Uh, the, the, um, but in any case, um, I think the district court was correct that it was a similar offense. I would start with that particular issue, Your Honor. The, the district court looked at how the, this court has cited uh, the Sixth Circuit's opinion um, in Johnson, which explained that uh, the language in the guidelines uh, were synonymous to felony drug offense, as that term is defined in Title 21. Um, and, and that term would certainly capture here, this defendant had a prior conviction for um, a, a felony drug offense, uh, felony possession of cocaine, Your Honor. Um, and this court has cited Johnson favorably in an unpublished opinion, as uh, the court noted, as recently as this year for this exact point about how 2D1.1 is really uh, a guideline provision that is keyed off of the statute and that the uh, base offense levels come from that statute and that the court ought to look at the history of, of that provision and how it's um, and how it's put together. And the, I think that the court is also right to point out that uh, that this provision has changed with the recent guideline provision. Now it says it's a serious drug felony, which has a different definition. But the provision, in effect, at the time of this sentencing, certainly would have captured the conduct uh, that this defendant had as a prior drug felony. Um, on the on the question of the fentanyl misrepresentation, I think the court did a, a lengthy made a lengthy factual finding here about how the defendant. Uh, was cutting drugs with fentanyl in order to make them more profitable, and that um, and that there was a recorded call where the defendant discussed uh, doing uh, doing exactly that, and that there was a search warrant done of the defendant's residence at the time of his arrest, and they located separately bagged quantities of heroin and fentanyl, and then a mirror on a coffee table in the living room with a razor blade and residue from both heroin and fentanyl in it, um, and and. And, and I think that uh, the, the district court was right to enhance the defendant on that particular uh, issue as well. Um, unless the court has any questions about the sentencing issues. Well, I, but, but there's no direct evidence that the particular you know, baggies that were distributed to these two defendants was in fact laced with both heroin and fentanyl, right? You have to sort of make an inferential um, sort of leap, not a leap, but you have to look at the circumstantial evidence and come to that conclusion. Is that fair? That's fair, Your Honor. I think it is circumstantial. There's a lot of circumstantial evidence here, though. You know, you have a series of controlled purchases from this defendant. All of the drugs are cut with various different kinds of drugs. 
You have the defendant discussing cutting the drugs in order to make them more profitable to stretch the product. And then you have this search where you find separately bagged quantities of heroin and fentanyl. And then you also have a bag of 0.2 grams of a mixture containing both heroin and fentanyl. And the primary cooperator in this case, Lisa Dufour, testified that that 0.2 is a user-level quantity of these drugs. And so what you have is two separate distribution quantities of heroin and fentanyl, a mirror with both drugs mixed together, and then a bag of a user-level quantity where they're cut together. So I think the district court was right to find that there was sufficient evidence. I think Judge Jackson even said that the jury could have found beyond a reasonable doubt that he knew he was cutting this product and misrepresenting it. Did y'all use a witness or expert or lay witness, whatever, to explain all this terminology of street drugs and stuff for the jurors? We did not. Sometimes you do in these cases. Yes, Your Honor. We didn't have a... Did somebody explain kilos and ounces and relationship and all those things? That's like a lot of Greek for most people. Yes, Your Honor. We had... You're selling it by the ounce, but you've got to prove it by a kilo. Yes, Your Honor. We did not have a... How was the jury able to figure that stuff out? The jury was able to figure that out because we had direct evidence from the defendant's co-conspirator who walked the jury through how his drug business grew. That was his lady friend who was indicted with him. Yes, Your Honor, who also participated... She talked in terms of ounces. Your Honor, she started by saying that in the beginning he purchased smaller quantities of drugs and then as the business became more successful that he was purchasing higher and higher quantities of drugs. Two of these counts, they had to prove a kilo. That's right, Your Honor. A kilogram. I mean, who explained what that was? I mean, the primary co-conspirator testified that the defendant was purchasing multiple ounces per week for I think the year leading up to his arrest, which would certainly exceed the one kilogram threshold. And the jury could rely on what that person testified to in court about the drug weight. We also had an informant who testified that he purchased drugs on a regular basis almost every day for a period of years from the defendant and described the quantities of those drugs. Just the purchases that informant made alone would be close to a kilogram of heroin, if not in excess of it. Your colleague on the other side, if I recall correctly in his brief, and this is related to Judge King's question, did make an argument, I think, that even though this expert, expert, I can't call him an expert, Mr. Schwartz, or lay witness, primarily talked about the summary of the calls. There was at least one reference to his interpreting coded language that drug conspirators would use. I mean, that's expert testimony. Wouldn't you agree? Your Honor, I'm aware of authority from this court that talks about interpreting calls. I think Judge Jackson was very careful to police that all that Mr. Schwartz was doing in this particular case was piecing together the contacts between our victims and the defendant here. Well, but did he do it in every case? That's not what he does in every case, Your Honor. No, I mean, here, I mean, did it happen? I mean, wasn't there some testimony, albeit brief, about what certain coded language meant in this case? If there was, Your Honor, I'm not aware of any objection that was made in the district court at the time to object to what he had testified to in that, as that particular issue. Well, how's the jury supposed to understand the street language? That's what, I thought you usually got somebody up there to explain it to them. 
Well, I mean, it's my recollection that a kilogram is 35 ounces. Did anybody ever tell them that? Your Honor, the co-conspirator, Ms. Dufour, she testified as to the amount of ounces in a kilogram when she was on the stand. I think she was asked on cross-examination, as I recall, that very question. Because of her familiarity with the drug business and knowing how many ounces are in a kilogram, she was able to answer that question and explain that to the jury on this particular question. To get back to this question from the court about Mr. Swartz, I think really the question for... You say you don't remember it, but the specific language was some reference to Purina Puppy Chow or Chew or Chi or something or other, and that really meant Hardcore Henry, which is another coded phrase for drugs, and that's sort of what I'm getting at. Yes, Your Honor. They were texting back and forth using veiled language in the text messages, and those text messages directly precede the purchase of fentanyl and acetafentanil that led to the overdose of Sean Schroeder and Ian Evans. But Mr. Swartz wasn't saying that... In some cases, the court has objected to having someone testify as a lay witness and say, when they talk on this jail call, they really mean this, without having proper predication to do that. That's not what Mr. Swartz was doing here. He was simply a summary witness to summarize the voluminous phone records between the victims and the defendant here that lead up to the overdoses in question. And then the government argued in closing that the jury should look at those messages because there are contacts that lead up to this particular drug purchase and then the overdose in question. And I don't know if the court has questions about the veneer issue. I'm happy to address that if the court does. But unless the court has any other questions, that's all I have, Your Honor. All right. Thank you, Mr. Coleman. Bernie? Thank you, Judge. Your Honors, I'd like to address the last two issues that I originally addressed, and I hope that they're important enough that they can make it into some sort of opinion, not in a footnote, but even if it is, we'll welcome it. As to the enhanced guideline, we briefed that issue here somewhat at page 45, beginning of page 45 of our brief, and actually in the joint appendix in an objection to the calculation of the sentencing guidelines at page 977. And when we were arguing it, we made our argument, and Judge Jackson said, I understand what you're arguing, but the Fourth Circuit is going to certainly have to take the view and expand the definition of similar offense. Judge Rushing says that it has. If it has, I would ask the court to consider this argument and determine whether that's exactly the precedent that you have set. As to the other four-level enhancement, I think the government is mixing apples and oranges. That also has been briefed at page, beginning at page 49 of our initial brief, and at joint appendix 977, the objection. This is a case where the distribution of fentanyl that killed that individual and injured the other one happened in July of 2017. 
The search warrant that Mr. Coleman is talking about didn't happen until November the 5th of 2020. When the, what the government used, relied on, at, I guess at trial, and in the sentencing, in the sentencing hearing, to apply this four-level enhancement, it's in my brief and it's on the transcript, is actually a conversation between a confidential informant that they flipped. It's a guy who was buying pills for my client's stepmother. I'm sorry, isn't the, isn't the testimony of the victim who survived enough? He said, we went to buy heroin, that's all we wanted. We asked for heroin, we got the wrong stuff, and then his friend, and he said we didn't do any other drugs from any other place that night, and then his friend died of fentanyl. So doesn't that suggest that the defendant sold them fentanyl mixed in the heroin? I would answer your honor specific question. It does. However, the enhancement is for knowingly, knowingly misrepresenting. Right, which is why he said they sold us the wrong stuff. That's not what we asked for. He misrepresented it. Well, he didn't say, with all due respect, he didn't say misrepresented. Right, that's the, that's the inference. Well, I wanted A, I got B, we can infer that he was never told I'm giving you B. Maybe so. I don't think the evidence shows that. And I will tell the court, I probably shouldn't, but I will tell the court what is happening really with drugs. And this is, because it's going to come up. I had cases, I think, with Mr. Hurt, where my client was actually caught with two kilograms of cocaine at two separate times. One time, the cocaine had fentanyl. And even if it is one speck of fentanyl, one gram of fentanyl, the lab will say a thousand grams of fentanyl, the sentence will be two and a half times higher than just heroin. But it will say fentanyl. So, but the first time had fentanyl. The second time, it just had heroin. My client did not step on the drugs. He, the drugs with some with heroin with fentanyl, heroin without fentanyl, were actually seized by DEA shortly after he got them from his dealer. He requested fentanyl. So you're talking about, you're talking about a different case, right? I'm talking about a different case. What I'm telling you, what I'm telling you. So here we have the victim who survived says, I wanted heroin, but my friend died from fentanyl. And then there's other evidence that supports the idea that this defendant knew how to cut drugs, was interested in stretching his heroin, et cetera, et cetera, that you say may be from a different time or a few months later or whatever, right? Okay. But what actually the government, what the government argued and what the government used to support their position for the application of this enhancement was a conversation between my client and one of the CIs where they were talking about cutting pills, not heroin, not hard drugs, pills. And actually they had the conversation and they had the drug certificate of the sale that took place that time. And it was heroin, no fentanyl. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Mr. Courtney, I see that you're court appointed. I appreciate your taking the appointment. And we always appreciate court appointed lawyers coming into court and quibbling with us about really important issues and making these cases much more digestible. And you've done that on behalf of your client today. So I want to thank you. Thank you for that. We'll come down and greet counsel and then take a short recess before moving on to our third and final case.